Will you pray with me? Father, as we consider every good and perfect gift you've given First Boynton, we thank you in particular this morning for the older members in our church. Father, we, we thank you for the testimonies of your grace in their lives. Every good and perfect gift you've given them. Decades of you fulfilling your promise to complete what you began. Decades of daily giving grace to resist temptation. Daily providing hope during suffering. Daily lavishing your love on them through Christ and by the power of your Spirit. Would you continue to uphold your commitment to work in and through the elderly in our church? Father, multiply holiness in their lives. Give them a fresh hatred for sin and an insatiable desire to obey you in a culture that says, live for yourself. You've earned it. Give them a holy distaste for that lie. May they spit out that lifestyle. May they live for you, recognizing that any good they have is because of your grace alone. Help them run their remaining laps of this life with greater zeal, more passion. May they not grow weary in doing good. Like your son Jesus coming to the end of his life, would they only want to serve you and your people more? Would they spend their retirement years on their knees washing the feet of your children, visiting the orphans and the widows? May they use their gifts that you've given to each one of them for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Father, give the elderly in our church a compelling hope, not in what they can squeeze out of this life, but how you may use their final years for eternity. Secure them with a conviction that any suffering they're experiencing now is preparing for them an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we'll see this morning in James 1.16, don't let them be deceived and doubt whether you're good. Show them through your spirit that you are completely good, perfectly good. Father, do that in their hearts and their minds this morning. Father, do that in, in my heart and in my mind as I preach and as uh, the congregation listens to your word. Father, convince us that you are good, that you are better than we can imagine, better than our best thoughts about you. Father, convince us of that through the power of your word and your spirit this morning. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, I think it could be argued that the problem of evil has upset faith in a good God more than any other objection to Christianity. More than the historicity of the resurrection, 
more than the inerrancy of the Bible, more than the exclusivity of Christ, the problem of evil has haunted humanity. Maybe it haunts you. How can there be a good God with so much evil in this world? So much evil in your life that you are tasting. How can there be a good God with all of that going on? I sympathize with that question. Your finite mind, my finite mind, we cannot fully answer this seeming contradiction. And while the Bible affirms that there is no contradiction between the existence of evil and a good God, I get why you may wrestle with this problem, this problem of evil. It's tricky. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, understood the difficulty too, and why his readers may be grappling with the same question, why his readers may be confused. He'll address this problem. But as he addresses it, I think he does something pretty shrewd. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he calls evil's bluff. And he shows how the apparent problem of evil can just be a massive decoy, a massive decoy from meditating on the goodness of God. How the confusion of evil can distract us from the clarity of a good God. And when we fall for evil's deceptive trap, and we focus in on philosophical concerns and losing focus on a good God, we can actually fall into greater evil. It's one of Satan's favorite tactics, actually. So don't be ignorant of his designs, Fish Boynton. He did it with Adam and Eve, and he'd love to deceive you in the exact same way. Here's what he'll do. He likes to give us these mental locks, these mental locks that are impossible for our own wisdom to pick, convincing us that if we could just figure out the problem of evil on the other side of that door, that there would be freedom. All we got to do is just pick this mental lock, and then once we can open up that door, there'll be freedom over there. And what he's doing is that he's trying to distract us from looking at God's word and seeing an open door of rescue. Through God's word, there's an open door of rescue right there, but he likes to present this seeming problem with the goodness of God for our minds to work out that we cannot in our own wisdom work out. It's a massive decoy. It's brilliant, actually. But James won't play that game. He will not play that game in James 1, 13 through 18. No, he pulls back the curtain on the problem of evil and shows how the root of evil, the root of evil is actually underestimating the goodness of God. I think that's the main point in this passage that we're going to look at this morning. The root of all evil is underestimating the goodness of God. James will unpack this point in two other subpoints. The root and fruit of evil, verses 13 through 15. And after transitioning us in verse 16, he will show us the root and fruit of good in verses 17 through 18. Let's first look at what is not the root of evil. 
What is not the root of evil? Our creator. Coming out of verses 1 through 12 and just kind of soaking in God's pervasive sovereignty over all the trials in our lives. James wants to be really clear about something. He wants to be really clear about something. At verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. James doesn't want us to be confused about the, that the truth of God's, sovereign, God's sovereignty over evil with the lie that God's the root cause of evil. Did you get that? James doesn't want us to confuse the truth that God's sovereign over evil with the lie that God's the root cause of evil. Our creator God will use your temptation for his glory, but he will not tempt you. We've got to nail this down in our minds and hearts because Satan would love to confuse us here. If we attribute evil to God, it will do two destructive things in your life and in my life. Two destructive things in our relationship with God. First, it will create suspicion about the goodness of God. We see this in the first round of temptations with Adam and Eve, don't we? Genesis chapter 3. What does Genesis 3 verse 6 say? It says, The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Translation, God's holding out on you, Eve. Don't you see that? He's keeping a piece of the pie for himself. Eve, have you ever wondered whether God's seeming good commands has evil intentions behind it? Have you ever considered, Eve, that God may be pretty good, but not perfectly good? Maybe he has some evil, sinister motives behind it. And with that suspicion slipping in and slithering around in her mind, she sees that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Learn from this first point. Do not be deceived. Suspicion about the goodness of God makes what's actually good look like evil, and what's actually evil look like good. And it'll distract us from the root of evil, which is our desire. What is the root of evil? Our desires. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. What lured and enticed Eve to eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil? Not Satan. Not the serpent. Her desire, her desire to make one wise, her desire to determine right and wrong for herself, her desire to be God over God. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Neither Satan 
God nor Adam were the root cause of her evil. While she tried to blame the serpent for her sin, he was not ultimately responsible. It was her desire that led her to sin. And the same is true for us. This reality could change your life, if you get that. Why do you sin? Have you ever wondered why you sin? Why do you sin? It's not because you have a difficult boss, or a stressful home, or because of your personality, or because even Satan made you do it. Satan can't make you do anything. We've seen that in Luke, right? He can't make Christians do anything. He has absolutely zero authority in your life. He can't control you. If his temptations work, it's because we've been lured and enticed by our own desires. We sin because we've overestimated what evil can offer us and have underestimated what God can offer us. We've underestimated the goodness of God. That's why we sin. This is heavy. <laughs> I get it. We're in the, the deep end of the Christian life here this morning. But I think this is just massively hopeful. It's so hopeful. If you've been trying to stop sin this pa past week by just sheer willpower, trying to grit your way through it, thinking, if I, if I just really try harder this time, I won't click on that link. I'm going to do better. That's not been working, and you're discouraged. James 1 is your way off of that terrible treadmill. You don't have to stay on the treadmill. Stop sinning. Address the desires behind your sin. How can you stop sinning? Address the desires behind the sin. How do you stop gossiping? Address your desire. Maybe it's a desire to feel included. How do you stop bitterness? Maybe you need to address the desire for justice. How do you stop overeating and gluttony? Maybe it's a desire for comfort. How do you stop Undereating, you may need to address your desire for approval or for control or fear. How can you stop sinning? Address the desires behind your sin. If you're like me, you may need help to see what those desires are. So I would encourage you this week as you confess your sin to one another which James is going to tell us to do. As you confess your sin to one another, ask the person you're confessing it to. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's one of the members here. Ask them, what do you think is the, the desire behind that? Help me. Help me see what those desires are behind the sin. Or if someone confesses sin to you, maybe that's a good question for you to ask them. What do you think is the desire behind that sin? What desire do you think that sin is trying to? to fulfill. 
here's what we got to do. We've got to cut off temptation at the level of desire if we are going to turn away from sin. Before it conceives and gives birth to sin. And sin brings forth death. What is the fruit of evil? Death. Verse 15, And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Temptation offers so much. So much. But don't be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. And while the fruit of sin may taste sweet, the bitter consequences always outweigh the pleasure. Richard Sibb says it this way. He says, Satan gives Adam an apple and takes away paradise. Therefore, in all temptations, consider not what he offers, but what we shall lose. Here's the reality. You don't know, and I don't know, where our sin will take us. We think we do. We think we have it managed. We can keep it in a box. But we don't know how deadly sin is. Eve sure didn't. One bite of an apple, and her son murders her other son. One bite of an apple, and 50 million die in World War II. One bite of an apple, and a man leaves his wife for another woman. One bite of an apple, and chronic depression settles on billions of people. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Do not be deceived about the root and fruit of evil. And do not be deceived about the root and fruit of good. Point number two of the sermon, the root and fruit of good. In temptation, understanding the root and fruit of evil is important, but it is also insufficient. Maybe you've heard a description or a definition of repentance, that repentance is, is doing a, a, a 180, doing a, a 180 from a sin. And I don't think that's a, a bad way to understand repentance. We have to turn from sin. But repentance is a lot more than that. It's fundamentally way more than turning just from sin. More than that, it's turning to something better, to someone better. As a pastor friend in Philly once put repentance, he says, you can't turn from something unless you turn to something. I think this is just a very helpful way of paraphrasing 1 Thessalonians 1.9, where Paul says, the Thessalonians turned from idols to serve the living and true God. So how do they turn from idols over here? They have to turn to the true and living God, to a good God. You can't turn from something unless you turn to something. Because here's what will happen. Here's what will happen if we just try to turn from something. Is we'll, we'll try to turn from something. We'll try to turn this way. And, and maybe if you're really self-disciplined, you can stay that way for like a few minutes or an hour or if you really are doing well and you have a lot of self-will, self, 
uh, self-power, self-discipline. Maybe you can even keep yourself out of that sin for a couple of years. But what will happen is if you don't satisfy your desires over here with something better, what will you do? You'll just turn right back around again. You'll do another 180 back to that original sin. Spinning in circles. Just spinning in circles with your sin. So that's it. Repentance without satisfaction makes us spin in circles back to our sin. What do we do? Don't, okay, I'm gossiping, I'm gossiping. I can't gossip, so I turn this way and I think, don't gossip, don't gossip, don't gossip. But without any satisfaction there, without turning to something better, what do we do? We go back to gossiping. It's bitter, and I want to get rid of it. So we turn... I don't want to be better. I don't want to be better. But if you don't satisfy your bitterness with something better, without answering that desire of bitterness, you will turn right back around. Repentance from evil minus satisfaction in a good God equals a 360 degree turn back to evil. James knows this. He knows this, which is where verses 17 and 18 come in. In contrast to the root and fruit of evil, he unpacks the root and fruit of good. And he shows how a good God can actually satisfy our verse 14 desires. It's why he starts verse 17 by repeating himself. Every good gift and every perfect gift. Every good gift and every perfect gift aren't talking about two different kinds of gifts. James is just double-clicking or highlighting or writing in all caps that our God is a good God. How do you repent of gossip? Well, you have to turn from gossip, but when you turn towards God to the living and true God, and you have that desire to feel included, well, you can satisfy your desire with a God who has steadfast love. Is that not what we saw in Psalm 136 earlier? You can satisfy yourself with a God who always includes you. With Jesus who brought you into his family. You don't need to be on the inside of a conversation of gossip. You already are brought into the inside of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how you defeat the desire of gossip. You can just go down the list of our sins and our desires turning to a good God. This is the crux of sanctification how we follow out in more obedience and turn away from disobedience. But to get there, we need to recognize what's not the root of good. What is not the root of good? Creation. Look with me at verse 17. Where does every good and every perfect gift come from? What does the text say? From above. Not from below. Not ultimately from creation. While creation is good, it is not the root source of good. It's absolutely critical that we get this distinction right because here's what our default reaction is when we experience God's good gifts. This is at least what it is for me. I either think I earned it or it's just kind of the random working of the universe. That's just our default reaction to the good things in our life. Why do we get the job promotion? Well, I put in overtime. I worked harder than my coworkers. I punched the clock. 
Why are my kids following the Lord? Well, I did family devotions. That's why. Through merit. Or here's what I do. I just passively experience God's array of good things in my life. Treating them like they're by chance or just the way that creation works. My morning coffee, breathing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, hearing, just the way the world works. Passively experiencing these God, these good gifts. But these are not just the way the world works. These are not random pleasures. Each one, both big and small, are intentional gifts coming down from where? From above. What is the root of good? Verses 17 and 18. Our creator. Far from being the instigator of evil, our creator is the giver of every good gift and every perfect gift. Let that sink in for a minute. Every good gift and every perfect gift. Every bit of good in your life has ultimately come from the active thoughtful and creative love of God. Biscuits with sausage gravy. The best pieces Bach ever wrote. Sunday afternoon naps. College football. Your favorite lyrics from your favorite artist. The gift of singleness. Marriage children, work, money, bogos on queso, every seashell at Gulfstream Park, did I mention biscuits and gravy? What about this church? Every member. Did you get your new membership directory? You're struggling to figure out where the goodness of God is in your life? Just look through these names right here. Every member God has given you. Every member that God has has set his love on before the foundation of the world and has called to himself and has regenerated and has brought them forth by the word of truth. Every good and perfect gift. Carl Nelson and Kathy Patterson, Matt Piercefield. We could just keep on going down. Every good and perfect gift in this church God has given us it's not random it's not because we deserved it they're intentional thoughtful gifts from a father that loves us all of these gifts coming down from the father of lights the father of stars the God of all creation and like he did for Adam and Eve he's given us these good gifts to enjoy so that's what we should do We should enjoy them. Taste the trees in the garden that God has given you. See that he is good. See, the the strategy to fight sinful desires is not to abandon desires. That's what Buddhism tells us to do. That's not a Christian way of thinking about fighting sin. No, the Christian way, the the biblical way to fight sin, the strategy to fight our sinful desires is fulfilling our desires in a good God who has given us good things. 
you can trust that only good things will come from his hand. Trials may ebb and flow. The brokenness of this world can catch us off guard. The bottom may drop out and you get fired unexpectedly. But the root of all good, our God, does not change. There's no variation in his good character or shadow due to change. He's unchanging in his goodness to us. And unchanging does not mean boring either. Get that. Unchanging does not mean boring. I think that's what Satan sometimes does. I mean, he's smart. He knows what he's doing. He'll take a, a passage like this and say, yeah, he's unchanging, and he'll equate that to God being boring. He'll admit that obeying God will give us some pleasure, but it's just sort of boring. Like going to Applebee's and ordering chicken tenders every Tuesday night. Like, you could do worse. It's not the worst thing in the world. But couldn't you do so much better? Right? This is a, a lie from the pit of hell that when Satan tries to convince us that God is boring in his good gifts to us. When James says there's no variation in God's goodness, he's saying God is unchanging in his creative ways to satisfy us with his goodness. God is not Tuesday night chicken tenders at Applebee's. No, he's, he's more like uh, a three-star Michelin or Michelin-star chef, unchanging in his creative ways to give us good gifts, to amaze us with his goodness. And the prime example of his goodness is seen in the person and work of goodness himself. Jesus Christ, God the Son, and the fruit of his work, new life. What is the fruit of good? New life. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Not out of compulsion or duty, but out of his good will, his own good will, God brought us forth which is just a, another way of saying that God gave us new life. And he did this. He gave us new life by the word of truth. The word of truth is just a phrase that always refers to the gospel. The message of God saving sinners through Jesus. So bringing all this together, here's what James is saying in verse 18. Out of his desire to do us good, God gave us new life through the gospel. This is the opposite result of what our evil desires have produced. Do you see that? This is the exact opposite of what we saw in verses 13 through 15. Our evil desires conceived sin which birthed death. And what does God do? He flips the script in verses 17 and 18. God's good desires conceived a plan of salvation which caused us to be re reborn into new life. By tasting the death, our sin birth, Jesus made a way for us to experience new life. And this new life is actually 
new. <laughs> He's not just giving us a do-over, uh, a mulligan, saying, I'll bring you back to zero and you can try harder this time. No, when he brings us into new life, he gives us a, a life that will never end. A life that we cannot mess up. A life that he has secured for us that will stretch out into eternity of us experiencing his goodness. What a good God. And it's that kind of God that we can trust to make sense of the problem of evil. The God who will voluntarily experience the death our sin deserves so we can experience the new life our Savior deserves. I'll trust that God. I'll leave the problem of evil in the hands that bled for me. Or as one author put it, if God did not keep bad things happening from God himself, you can trust him with the evil you can't explain. You can trust the God who died your death. And you can trust the God who defeated death three days later. While the world tries to figure out the problem of evil. Trying to pick the lock outside of evil's door. Trust the God that went into evil's grave and kicked down the door from the inside. Trust the God who can roll away the power of evil. The God who folds up the clothes evil gave him and walks out. Do you trust him? Have you trusted in the life, death, and resurrection of that God? Have you experienced new life? If you have, it's just the beginning. <laughs> it's just the beginning of new life. God gave us new life. What does verse 18 say? That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James is saying that spiritual life is just the first fruits, it's just the beginning. More is coming. The new heavens and the new earth. Your regeneration, your salvation is a, a preview, an expectation, an appetizer of what is coming in the new heavens and the new earth, which is complete restoration. While Adam's evil desires led to cosmic death, the last Adam's good desires lead to cosmic new life. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. The root of all good is our creator. And the fruit of our good creator's desires for us is new life. When you're tempted, when you're tempted this week, do not underestimate the goodness of that God. Whatever estimation you have of his goodness, it is greater. He is greater. Choose him. Delight yourself in him. Let's pray. Father, you are goodness himself. Give us eyes to see that. As we see our sin, as we experience temptation and the, the desires behind our sin, show us that your goodness can satisfy what our hearts desperately want. Satisfy us with the goodness of who you are expressed in the person and work of your son, Jesus.
satisfy us so that when temptation comes, we're tempted to evil, we would remember and we would reflect that we have a, a good God who can satisfy our deepest longings, our deepest desires. We ask for that all in your son's name. Amen.